0: It's the triumph of warmth over cold, of tulip blossoms over ugly bulbs. But most of all, it's the time when millions across the globe look back to the events of the Passion Week. Turn with our study leader Dave Wordson to Matthew chapter 21 as we begin our study entitled The Last Week Rejected in Jerusalem. Well Mary and I are really thrilled to be back. Uh, We had an incredible time. We got to go down to the Caribbean with Andy and Joan Horner. We met them way back in 71 and when Andy and Joan were fully retired the Lord led them to start a company called Premier Designs and we actually started it to give money to missions and it just literally exploded. There's now like 35,000 jewelers, and they had a big trip down to the Caribbean if, and rewarding some of those that have done really well. And we got to suffer for Jesus. Somebody has to do it. They invited us to go with them. One of the guys, Kent, is from Michigan. He and his wife, Becky, uh, were eating with them one day uh, we, as we're going down towards St. Thomas. And Kent said to me, man, I'm from Michigan, and, you know, we didn't really have that much snow in Michigan where we live, but I came to Dallas. I thought it was going to be a marvelous week to play golf and everything, and when he came down to Dallas, guess when he came to Dallas? It's when the snow was billowing in my front yard. We had 13 inches of snow, 14 inches, some of you. And Kent said, I can't believe it. I come to Dallas to play golf, and it looks more like Michigan and Dallas than it does way up in the the North Country. How many of you are really glad that... Lord willing, the cold is over and the spring has come. My son Josh calls me. The Lord has taken their two kids up to Kansas to visit some family. And Josh said, man, I'm a school teacher. He works in kind of a really tough school. He said, man, I just need a break. He I just want to sit down and be able to get up in the morning and watch the incredible college basketball, the tournament. This is March Madness. Well, Laura said, Josh, you can not only do that for one day, but I'm taking the kids for three days. So for three days straight, you can just watch basketball nonstop. You know, I've worked out almost 24 hours a day. That's what spring is. It's the time of March Madness, the best basketball there is in the world. But what's the most important thing that's going to happen in the next few weeks? What's the most important thing that this time of the year should signal for us? Not the absence of cold. Not the best basketball in all the world, but in the next few weeks, do you realize, and I put the figure down here, that two billion, one hundred and seventy-three million, one hundred eighty-three thousand four hundred people are going to stop, and on Good Friday, they're going to remember a peasant Jew from Galilee that was crucified. Now, I want you to know that in the first century, there were thousands of Jews that were crucified. Why is it that this poor peasant Jew from up in Galilee, from the other side of the track, more than 2 billion people are going to stop and remember him and look back at what he did? You need to really think about that. Okay, it's very, very important. We also need to realize that he was accused by his enemies, like the popular movement up in galilee where jesus was from in nazareth was the hotbed of attack against the romans in fact where jesus was born in, in nazareth almost that whole area was pulsating with we got to get rid of the romans we got to get rid of the romans and so there was a tremendous pressure upon jesus just like there's pressure on our own day how many of you ever heard someone say man we need new leadership in washington anybody heard that Man, we need to change things here. You know, we need, a, we need another. We need a great leader. Well, the Jewish people up in Galilee had even stronger viewpoints. mean, they were oppressed. The Romans were controlling everything. The, the Romans were taxing them and just breaking their backs. And right where Jesus was raised, the zealot movement was born and it just blew up and exploded. And what they wanted was someone that would take a sword and would overcome Caesar and set up the kingdom of the Jewish people and they wouldn't be oppressed anymore. And there's a tremendous powerful movement. It was a very real thing. In fact, we're going to be looking at the last week of Jesus. It's about 33 AD in the springtime. In 67 AD, that movement, that political movement exploded. And they did rise up, and they tried to throw off the Romans. And that's when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. Jesus instead said, you need to pay taxes to Caesar. Incredible thing. Very unpopular among his Galilean Jewish friends that he was raised with. You need to pay taxes to Caesar. And then he said, but you need to realize that you're made in the image of God. You can look at the image of a denarius, and Caesar's image is on the denarius. But you're stamped with the image of God. And Jesus challenged the people in the first century challenging us that you need to be a citizen of whatever country you're a part of. But your ultimate allegiance is to remember you're made in the image of God, which challenges us what has happened to that image, what's going on. And that's what Easter and the crucifixion and all that challenges us about. So what we want to do the next few weeks together is I want to be used of the Spirit To prepare your heart and to prepare my heart. Because I find that spring has just kind of sprung. Anybody feel that? I can't believe it's here. And man, I can't believe Easter. And you know, we're rushing towards it and and you ladies are already rushing to Walmart to, you know, to get your daughters, if you're a little bit more wealthy, you're at JCPenney or one of the other stores to find your little girls some really beautiful dresses. It's the time where those ugly bulbs become beautiful Easter lilies. This is an incredible time of the year. But for us as followers of Jesus, and if you haven't joined us in following Jesus, maybe I can say some things in the next few weeks that will just really stir you. Because I believe that just as certainly as, as Moses challenged the next generation of Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, he didn't say way back then at Mount Sinai, so-and-so happened. What Moses claimed is that every generation of Israelites needed to realize that they were at Mount Sinai. So what I want you to do in the next few weeks is I want us to open up to Matthew. We're going to use Matthew's Gospel. Turn to Matthew 21. And I want you, over the next few weeks, to try to read this text really carefully. I want you to try to put yourself in the story. I want you to enter Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the last week of Jesus. We want to find out why he was rejected in Jerusalem. We want to find out how in the world that a week that began with Hosanna, save us, O Son of David, how in the world did it ever end with crucify Him, crucify Him? That's an incredible, dramatic turnaround. How in the world did this week begin with children praising, the King has come, the Son of David has come, and it ends nailing Him to a cross? And then how does it really end? Did it really end on the cross? That's what we want to enter into, and I don't want you to miss it. I find in my own life, because I've known Jesus since when I was small, it's easy for me to just let this time of the year go by, and I just take for granted, and I'm praying that this year, and I'm praying for myself, and I'm praying for you, that we won't take it for granted. It's an incredible thing. This poor peasant Galilean that lived 2,000 years ago it's going to be worshipped and adored, and the whole culture around the world is going to stop, more than two billion strong. You owe it to yourselves no matter what you believe. Why is that so? So we're going to begin this morning in Matthew 21, and we're going to look at three little vignettes, the great disciple Matthew he's Jewish very Jewish and he approaches the last week very much from a Jewish perspective it's the very first gospel and what he does is he begins his account of the last week rejected in Jerusalem with three little vignettes three little episodes as Jesus enters Jerusalem and what I want to do is I want you to think about who are you in this story How do you answer the questions that are raised? It begins with a very familiar one. How many of you have ever gone to church on Palm Sunday? How many of you were little kids? You waved palm trees. Anybody did that? You know, you walked around the auditorium. It's interesting. Only John's gospel tells us that they were palm trees. In fact, they had to bring the palms all the way from Jericho because there's not palm trees on the Mount of Olives and near Bethphage. So they might have cut some olive branches or stuff, and maybe some farmers were upset about that. But they they strewn the wall, and all of you have rejoiced in that. What was really going on? Well, let's see if we can find out about what's going on in the triumphal entry. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the center of Judaism. Jerusalem is the city of David. Jerusalem is still being hassled over. That's You want to enter into this. Read the story. This week, Vice President Biden was in Tel Aviv. And he was in Israel. And they're still hassling because they made an announcement that the Jews are going to build another big settlement really close to Jerusalem in the vicinity of the city. And Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, has to say, you've offended us deeply. Whatever you believe, its history just keeps revolving around the city called Jerusalem. You need to think through, why is that so? Because 2,000 years ago, Jerusalem, not New York, wasn't even heard of yet, just a little island covered with trees. But this city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the city that Joab took, It's somehow at the center of things. Jesus has left Jericho just to get you flowing in the story. He just healed two blind men as he's leaving Jericho. He ascends about 2,000 feet up this very treacherous path, which is where he told the story. It's It's the setting for the story of the man that was beaten up along the road and the Good Samaritan came and helped him. That's the road. He comes up over the east side of the mountain, and on the Mount of Olives, as he comes to Bethphage, he's just almost at the crest of the mountain. And in just a minute, when you go over that crest, even today, if we were to go to Israel, when we take you to Jerusalem, we always take you to the Mount of Olives. And there's an old, it's not a holiday inn anymore, but it used to be It's some other hotel now. And it just overlooks this whole scene. That'll help you to kind of picture it. So Jesus is coming up over the east side. In just a minute, you're going to look at the whole holy city, the city of Jerusalem. So that's the dramatic setting. What's going to happen? It says he came to Bethphage. We don't know exactly where Bethphage is. It's probably a little bit west of Bethany. Bethany is where Lazarus was raised from the dead. It's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. Bethphage is probably a little bit west of there. Very small village. They have found in archaeology, they found kind of a mosaic that pictures uh, figs and a a fig tree that dried up, which is where we're going to end up this morning. So maybe that's the location. But it's on the major pilgrimage route. As you come up on the Mount of Olives, you stop at Bethphage. Probably, you know, the, the, the people, just like tourists today, get orange juice and get fruit juice and things like that. Bethphage would be a stopping place before they make the final descent down the mountain and then up into the holy place in Jerusalem. That's what Bethphage is. It's on the Mount of Olives. If you're Jewish, the Mount of Olives is a really important place. In fact, the prophets predict that one day in the Mount of Olives, the Messiah will come. And the Messiah will come back to the Mount of Olives. We believe from Acts. Where did Jesus ascend to heaven? He ascended from the Mount of Olives. So for us in salvation history, this is really important stuff. In fact, the prophets predicted that one day when the Messiah comes, that the Mount of Olives is going to cleave, so the mountains are going to move, which is where we're going to end about mountains that move. One day it says there is going to be tremendous seismic activity. And there's going to be fresh water that is made from this tremendous change that takes place when the Mount of Olives really moves and and water is able to flow into the Dead Sea. And it's a picture of incredible fertility. So all this is going on. If you're Jewish, the Mount of Olives is this place of great anticipation. It has great messianic import. It's the place that the prophets predicted that eventually there would come a great son of David, a great Messiah, a great anointed one, and he would deliver Israel, and he would set up a kingdom of peace, and that's the hunger. Many of our young people that are hungering for that ultimate utopia, and how can we get there? We need to listen in the next few weeks, because Matthew is going to speak about it. The Man of Olives is ultimately going to be the place where that utopia begins, as the Messiah does, touch down from out there, and he comes back here. But this is the first time, and you're not going to be ready for the second time that he comes if you don't understand what's going on in the first time. And that's what I want to challenge you about. So the Mount of Olives is a loaded mountain. It's loaded with, with last things and drama and the coming of the Messiah. Jesus sent two of his disciples. So he takes two of his group of twelve. We don't know exactly who they are in this context. It says two of his disciples, and doesn't name them. So we need to ask ourselves, and as you're reading an account like this, you want to ask yourself, who do I identify with? Okay, Jesus is the big hero in the story, he's the major character. The disciples are unnamed, and so that means you need to think about where am I in this story? Am I going to be one of these disciples? And you want to think through as we're going through these accounts, these three vignettes, and I'm trying not just to teach you this morning, but I also want to teach you how to read and how to listen, how to understand God's Word so that the next few weeks you can do far more than I could ever do on a Sunday morning. When it doesn't tell you the name of the disciples, then the story is telling you maybe I could be one of those disciples. You know, maybe my name could be put in there. And will I identify with them? What is the disciple? The disciple is the one that follows Jesus. In this context, it's one that obeys Jesus. He does what he says. He says the Lord Jesus says to two of the disciples, go to the village ahead of you. And at once, immediately you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. So you got a donkey and the donkey's little f- colt. And the Lord says, I want you to untie them and bring them to me. So they're going to untie the mom. As all of you know that are good ranchers and everything, the colt's going to just trot along with its mom, right? Hopefully. And this is part of the story as well because Jesus is the creator and he's also the ideal man. So in the book of Genesis, it says that the animals are supposed to obey us. And even some of you that I've known for many years that are really awesome riders and awesome cowboys, your horses don't always obey you. Your Lord Jesus knows all about donkeys, He knows about colts, he knows about riding, and that's part of this story as well, that whoever this ideal savior is, that he's the ultimate man, that even the animals are subject to him, that's part of this story. The disciples go, just where the Lord says, He says, "Untie them." And you need to tell, if anyone says to you, you can imagine if you go into a Texas town and someone has their their horse tied up, in this case it's a donkey because it's in the Middle East, and the colts buy the donkey, they're all tied up, and you just go and untie them, I promise you, someone's gonna say something, what are you doing? Right? Isn't that accurate? Man, if you go on a ride and and you tie your horse, take a break, and somebody comes and just untied your horse, your first response is gonna be, hey, what are you doing? So the Lord anticipates that. Look what he says. If anyone says to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, what's going on in this story? The Lord is the hero. The disciples, are they good guys or bad guys, you think? Tell me. You think they're good guys or bad guys? Good. They're good guys. They're good guys. And the Lord anticipates their objection. I can just see one of the disciples say, do you mean I'm supposed to go to a town ahead of us up in the Bethphage and I'm supposed to just steal a guy's donkey and steal the colt and everything? And the Lord says, no, no. Were they stealing? No. Who does the donkey belong to? God. That's part of what it tells you. And how does the Lord say when they say, what are you doing? How are they supposed to answer? The Lord needs them. So that's part of this story. The way you respond to this story. Jesus has come to you and says, I want your donkey. I want your colt. I want your house. I want your car. I want your clothes. I want all your possessions. And you say, why should I give it to you? And what he is about it, Jesus says, I'm the Lord. And that's what you're going to decide. One of the challenges in the next few weeks is, the Lord has need of him. Is the guy that owned the donkey and the colt a good guy or a bad guy? Good guy. How do you know he's a good guy? Because he listens. When it says the Lord needs him, no problem. Immediately, it's okay. When the Lord says, hey, I need, I need what you have. How do you respond? How do I respond? That's what's going on in this story. That reveals where my heart is. It reveals what I think about who Jesus is. So the story's loaded already. The Lord tells the disciples, get them already." ready, they go. It says, they, it says that they went He sent them right away. And it says, this all happened that it might be fulfilled. Look at verse 4 because this is real important. All of this, you say, what in the world, what in the world, this is a weird story. Like, you know, in modern circles, like in modern circles, if the president's going to come and visit Dallas, then there's going to be a big motorcade, right? And you've seen that around the world. Well, in the ancient Near East, you didn't have a great big motorcade. You went and got a really powerful stallion. And this happened a lot. Like Mark Antony went to the city of Ephesus and he rode as a Roman general. He rode a great powerful steed. Why? Because this is a very common thing. When a ruler comes, they come in power. And you've all seen it in some of the old movies you've seen. The stallion comes prancing. The great general comes. All the slaves are behind. That's a picture of conquering. But there's another picture that's very powerful, and you wouldn't get this as Americans because it's really not part of our culture. But throughout the ancient Near East, for a long time, when a ruler is coming not as the great conqueror, not as the warrior that just leveled you, when a ruler comes in humility and in gentleness to care for you, when the ruler comes in peace, they don't ride a war steed, They ride a donkey. And this is a very common figure, and it's one of the things that's used in ancient Near Eastern literature. It talks about the kings that ride and the princes that ride donkeys. There's a very powerful story. Solomon, at the end of David's life, David's getting ready to go home to be and to live in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Solomon, his son, is supposed to be the next ruler, but there's tremendous power struggles going on in his household. In the beginning of 2 Kings, David says, I want you to get my donkey. And I want you to put my son Solomon on that donkey. I want you to take that you lead that donkey with Solomon sitting on my donkey taken to the Gion spring and you anoint him king. And that's exactly what David's servants do. And it stops a civil war taking place. And suddenly Solomon is ordained by his father Solomon is the king of Israel that means peace, the peaceful king. So the picture of a king, so what I want you to know, one thing you need to get really clear, who is Jesus? According to this text, we've learned he's the Lord. He's the ideal Adam who's in control of creation. He also is the gentle king. And this is very important because in his first coming, in in his first coming, Jesus is going to ride into your life and he's going to be gentle. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have great power, so don't underestimate him. But part of what you need to understand with yourself and with your friends is Jesus won't force himself into your life. That's part of what's going on. He rides into the city of Jerusalem, not with his army, his angelic army behind him, not riding a fiery chariot with war horses. He rides very humbly. And even today... Like, donkeys are not the symbol of majesty and omnipotence and power. They're really strong. They'll really kick you-know-what out of coyotes. But when you're riding them, like, we used to take little kids. When I was up at the World of Life Ranch, we'd put little kids on donkeys. And we'd take all these little kids all around the camp. And they were great with kids. And that's the picture that's used here. Now, why did all this happen? Because Zechariah the prophet predicted, say to the daughter of Zion, say to the people in Jerusalem, Zion is Jerusalem. The daughter of Zion would be all the people living in Jerusalem. There's going to come a day when see your king comes to you. See that? He's going to be gentle. He's going to be riding on a donkey and on a colt, which is why the little colt is along. And I'm not sure that the picture here is that he's doing some kind of a circus act, riding on both the colt and the foal. I think the idea is they put their clothes on both of them, which is a very common thing in the ancient Near East. They would have a couple animals and put their, they dress them all in their clothes. And those of you that know it, the colts, it's going to be really with its mama, so they're really close. I don't think it's picturing Jesus somehow straddling both animals. I think the picture here is of he's sitting on the donkey. The mama donkey and the colt right there, and they're putting clothes on all these, which is a picture of a gentle king, just exactly like Zechariah said. Now, here's really important. You say to Dave, why should I believe all this? Because this is more than 350 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And for me, that's really important. My faith is not just built on a great story. There's ancient sacred writings, and when I read the book of Zechariah, which was written more than 350 years before the time of Jesus, the book of Zechariah predicts that Alexander the Great is going to conquer and going to rule, but it eventually talks about the fact that Jewish people are going to rise up against the Greeks and they're to conquer him. So, part of what Zechariah predicts is that the Maccabeans, which in 167 rose up against the Greek ruler and his Epiphanes and they threw off his power, Zechariah predicted that. And the Maccabees were a hammer. But Zechariah also predicted that there would be a ruler, not Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is a son of David, and he was gentle. And with the help of of Joshua the high priest, they rebuilt the temple like Haggai said that they should do. But Zechariah predicted a much bigger picture, that there was going to come this great king, and he would come into the city of Jerusalem, and he would be gentle. He would be a king of peace, and he would come riding on a donkey, and with the donkey's foal, with its colt. 350 years before Jesus came. Why is Jesus telling him to do this? Because prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And you have to decide. I need to decide. Do I believe it? What happened in 33 A.D.? My personally believe that just like Zechariah predicted, Zechariah did picture Zerubbabel. Zechariah did look forward to the victory of the Maccabees. But then by incredible revelation, Zechariah could look to 33 A.D., and he pictured that the Son of God, Jesus, the Lord, would sit on a donkey with a colt and would be like Solomon of old. He would ride into Zion, and he said, City, the daughter of Zion, your king comes to you. He's gentle, he's riding in a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. How do you respond to this king? Who would you say the text is telling you? Who was Zechariah saying is going to come? And this is a big issue. I've told you so far, Matthew's telling you that Jesus is the Lord. Matthew's told you so far that Jesus is the ideal, ultimate Adam, that even the animals respond to him. Now he's telling you that he's the ultimate king. When all of you realize that, when I was down at St. Thomas in the Caribbean, and we were in the center of St. Thomas with a bunch of high school kids playing their band music, who ultimately rules in St. Thomas. Jesus, though, ultimately, one day he will. And right now he really is a legitimate king. Anywhere you go in the world, go to Egypt, go to Israel. One thing I want you to understand about your faith and about your Jesus, it's not just some cultural thing. It's not just the way you were raised. I'm talking about an objective Savior that's really there, and I want every one of the children especially, the reason we worship him, the reason we've gathered together this morning is because Jesus is the king. All the world yearns for a great king. Don't you, part of Easter is don't you ever sell your soul to any king until you've examined his hand. Don't you ever pour your life, in the ultimate meaning of your life, don't ever pour out your life blood, unless there's nail prints in his feet. That's what this text is saying. That as a child of God, that my king, my hope, the one who rightfully deserves to rule, is this Jesus. That's what the text is setting up for you. That's the grander of who this Jesus is. And you got to decide whether you're going to believe it's true or not. The disciples went. They were obedient. And the challenge is for us to be obedient when the Lord talks to us. And they did exactly as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey, the colt, they placed their cloaks... And Jesus said on them, and the idea of taking your cloaks, this was something they often do in the ancient Near East. With a king, you would take your outer garments out and let the king walk over them. What you're saying is, I'm submissive to you. I put yourself under—I put myself under your authority. My belongings belong to you. You can step on them, and I honor you. That's all that's going on in them taking off their garments. It's what they would do when they're expressing submission to the great king. A very large crowd did that, and they cut branches from the tree So, evidently, they took some of the olive branches, and some of them we know from the Gospel of John brought up palm branches from Jericho, and the crowds went ahead of them. And those that followed, so you got people in front of Jesus, people behind him, and they're shouting out, Hosanna, deliver us, is what it says in Aramaic. Save us, O son of David. Then, blessed, all the happiness that will come from the one that comes to us in the name of the Lord. That's what blessed means. They're expressing praise. Hosanna, deliver us in the highest. Jesus is from heaven. And when Jesus entered, the whole, the whole city was stirred. And the word stirred, the whole city is troubled. That's what Jesus does. I want you to understand as you, ne- as you think through the next few weeks, I want you to pray that some of your family members will be troubled, that they'll be stirred. You should be stirred. You, should, you can't just fall asleep when Jesus walks into Jerusalem. You've got to decide. That's what this text is saying you got to make a decision who Jesus is. And, and I want you to see, it's a bunch of baloney to say, oh, he's a great religious teacher. That's not what's going on here. Do you see that picture? This is the historical document. This is from the first century. It is not telling you that Jesus is some great Confucius, that Jesus is some great example. It's telling you he's the king. What do you believe? It's saying he's the one that will bring peace. What do you believe? It's saying that he's the creator. What do you believe? Now, the city of Jerusalem, it says they were stirred. Now, when it uses the idea of the people in Jerusalem, it's really focusing on the leaders. And when it says that they were stirred, it says that they were agitated. They're troubled. They're upset. So what do you think? You think they're going to be good guys or bad guys? We don't know yet. But the idea of them rising up being troubled. When you see little kids pray, how many of you notice that little kids just praise? Have you ever noticed that? You, how many of you ever been in a children's ministry with a bunch of little kids? Are little kids inhibited? Usually not. You tell little kids to jump, they jump. Tell little kids to be happy, they're happy. Little kids will will almost automatically praise. And just be exalted with happiness in praise to Jesus. So part of this story about Easter is I ask myself, how do I respond? When it comes to praising Jesus, like how would you have responded when Jesus is coming up over the hill? And you see people throwing garments before the hymn. You see people putting branches, both before, and then people are waving palm branches. And you see a bunch of little kids. They're dancing. They're, they're shouting out, Hosanna, deliver us the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And man, these little kids, are, they're Jewish kids, so they're twirling and they're everything like that. How do you respond to that? It's a really important question at Easter time. Because what you get excited about, what you allow to thrill you, and one of my responses is, as a Dallas Seminary guy, I'd sit there and go, i fold my hands. What are these kids doing? I wonder if they understand everything that they're talking about. You don't really want to be that exuberant. We might, we might get people really upset here. I mean, I got all kinds of reasons to be upset. I would, I would have a tendency, because this is the way I often am. I want to stay on the outside of a crowd. Anybody like that? Just being honest with you. Like to be honest with you? I'd rather, Mary and I would rather go to an unbelieving Jewish wedding most of the time than a believing converted wedding. You say, why is that? Because to be honest with you, most Christian places that I go, people just aren't that happy. That hurts me. Jesus wants us to understand how incredibly joyful it is. We've got a Savior that's delivered us. We're on the other side of Calvary. Amen. We're on the other side of Calvary. One of the things that I prayed this Easter time, that the celebratory joy would flow. One of the most thrilling things for Mary and myself was when Janae and Harvey got married. I just talked to them, and Janae's about a month away from being having little Harvey the Fifth. But one of the coolest things for us, we had the service right here. And then the Methodist church, with great illustration of the unity of the body of Christ, the Methodist brothers and sisters of Christ couldn't have been nicer. They just, they just bent over to help us. They wanted us to have the reception there. But Janae and Harvey had a ton of Dallas seminary students that came to the wedding. You know, their seminary, both men and women, theirs today. But Mary and I had been with a lot of Harvey and Janae's friends. We went to a pumpkin carving contest, and they were all having an incredible blast. Some of the most incredible creativity. Who ever heard of creative art with pumpkins? And these kids explode with creativity. But one of the things that just thrilled me to death is when Janae and Harvey had the reception, they said, let's dance. The Dallas Seminary kids exploded with fun. I thought these kids are crazy. That's because they've been redeemed. One of the things that's causing us to block unbelievers from coming to the Savior is they believe that we as believers have never learned how to dance, how to celebrate, how to have joy. And one of the things I dream for us as a body of Christ this Easter time. That the Lord will help us to grow in the exuberance And the freedom that flows from deep inside. Jesus has come. Not just to Jerusalem, but he's come to my life. And he has delivered me. And he has forgiven me. And he is the king. And though I might not see him ruling over everything now. In the end, he's going to rule. And so I lift my hands and I rejoice. And on Palm Sunday is not about being rising up with anger. It's accepting the incredible wonder of who this king is that's come. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, goes right through the golden gate. He goes up into the temple, and look what happens. It says he entered the temple, and lest you think that this little, gentle, meek, peaceful king doesn't have strength, all you men listen to this, the Savior you follow is very strong. You ladies need to listen as well. He saw those that were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He threw the benches where they, those that were selling doves were seated. And he said, it's written, my father's not you be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The, and this is an incredibly powerful thing. Jesus is now claiming right after all those claims were made, he's the son of David, he's the king. Now he's saying, I'm the priest that rules in this temple. I'm the priest that controls here. And in my daddy's house, it should be a place where all nations can come and pray. So the power of prayer. One of the things that needs to happen over these next several weeks about Easter is that we grow in our understanding how incredible it is to be able to pray. A lot of you have spent time this last week where you've just gone outside on a beautiful morning and you just pray. That's a sign that you've met the Messiah, that the resurrected Christ has come to live inside of you. You see, we don't have to go to a temple anymore. We don't have to go to a special place. Anywhere, anytime, we can experience the immediacy of God and connection with him. And we must not let the buying and selling, as good as that is, in fact, Jesus isn't condemning buying and selling. He's condemning robbing. So if you really come to Jesus, then don't rob people when you buy and sell. Don't cheat them. If you've really met this king, you can't do that. Now, notice what happens when Jesus throws everything out. It says the blind and lame come to Jesus. One of the reasons why I worship Jesus this Easter season is because he can heal the blind and the lame. In heaven, all the blind and lame can see and walk. Amen? My friend Johnny Erickson is going to dance in heaven. That's what it's saying. And I believe that Jesus gives us glimpses of that. We've seen it in our church family. I think we see glimpses of his kingdom. But we only see glimpses right now because not all things have been subjected yet. So sometimes we're we're anticipating, we're waiting, because we don't see all the blind and lame get healed now, always. We see miracles. We see moments of grace. But Jesus is saying at this cleansing in the temple, he's saying, I'm the king, and I'm inaugurating, I'm initiating the time of the end. In me, you see the end, and the blind and the lame are going to be healed. Now, how should you react? If you had a blind mother, she hasn't seen in 20 years, you take her to the temple, and the Lord Jesus heals her, how should you react? How do you think preachers should react? How did the Jewish high priest? I want you to understand, the Jewish high priests are the Jerusalem priests. We need to be really careful. Matthew is Jewish. So he's not attacking Jewish people. He's attacking all religionists, myself included. That's what's going on here. Now, how did they react? Look what it says. It says the, the priests come to him and they say, do you hear? It says, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. I, I've, have you not read that from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? It says that the, the chief priests and the teacher of the law in verse 12, 15, look at it. They saw the wonderful thing that he did and the children shouting in the temple and they were indignant. Boy, that troubles me. That's a powerful statement. Are those good guys or bad guys? Tell me. Okay. Are you like a child that loves to see the moments of grace when Jesus just breaks through and he does, he heals the blind and the lame? Isn't that great? Do you rejoice? Do you celebrate? Religionists, now get this, religionists don't. Because Jesus has overturned their holy place that they controlled. Jesus has let the rabble in. Jesus has let the blind and lame that are, their bodies are not clean. Jesus let them in. And you got to decide which side you're going to be on. Am I going to be on the side of the welcoming Savior that can take blind and lame people and make them able to see and walk, and I'm going to dance, and I'm going to celebrate, and I'm going to rejoice with them? Or am I going to be on the side of those that judge? That's what our church family is about, deciding which side we're going to be on. Then the last vignette is Jesus leaves the temple area, the next day, he sees a fig tree, and Matthew's gospel describes Jesus come to the fig tree. It's loaded with leaves, but it doesn't produce any fruit. And Jesus curses the fig tree, and it withers. And then Jesus says to his disciples, he said, and you would expect him to say, I was speaking about the Jewish religious leaders, which he was, not just Jewish, but all religious leaders, that reject Jesus as a Messiah because they want to maintain their own power base. They don't rejoice when people are healed. They don't rejoice when the Savior comes because he's overturning all the tables and they want to be in control. I would expect you to say that, but he says something different. He says, you know what? If you follow me, he's saying, and you believe that even the mountains will move. Now, the biggest mountain that I face is not the Mount of Olives. It's the mountain of my guilt. And that's what Matthew's pointing us to. As we move through these chapters together, together, Jesus is pointing to the fact that if I just trust him. You see, Jesus isn't a magician that enables you to do tricks, to move trees, to move mountains. It's a figure of speech. Jesus is telling you, you follow me, you're following a king, that if you trust me and you talk to me, that the powers of heaven enter into your life. And so you can commit things to the Lord, and, and, and it's a life that can be difficult because sometimes the Lord Jesus doesn't answer our prayer immediately, but we always believe. Like I prayed over and over again with Mary, help Mary's mom to be healed. And she wasn't healed here. But because Jesus is my king, He answered our prayers. Do you believe that? I'm not speaking lightly. I just looked at a picture of my mom, and my mom died many years ago. Has my mom disappeared this morning as I came here? Is my mom gone? What do you think? The truth of the matter is, for my own human thing, like I have a great mind. I can, you know, the Lord so far has held me together most of the time. But I'm forgetting my mom. Forget what she smells like. Forget Things that she said. Mary even said to me on the trip, I'm forgetting mom. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Are they going to disappear because you forgot? You know what Easter is about? Easter is about a king that eventually takes us into a kingdom where we remember and where we know. And when everyone's healed, Isn't that an incredible, incredible, wondrous Easter gift, spring gift? But you got to decide, are you going to be like the disciples that follow Jesus, obey his command, like the man who gave him his donkey, like the man who gave him his colt, like the little children that sang, like the crowds that exalted him? Or am I going to be like the religious leaders that become indignant, That become angry. Who is this Jesus? The text is here. A lot of the crowd says he's a prophet from Galilee. Is that true? Yeah. Jesus was a prophet from Galilee. But based upon what Matthew taught us today, he's far more than just a Moses, far more than just an Isaiah. He's the ultimate son of David. He's the king of kings. He's the one that when we trust in him, he can move the mountain. Even the mountain of our indignance and our guilt and our pride, and he can change us. Man, we've got a great several weeks here to get ready to join more than two billion strong that are going to pray and exalt this Jesus.